We're in a series called Potential, God Place Greatness in You. We're studying the life of David, uh, and he was known as a man after God's own heart. And yet what many of you know him as is two different things. You know him as a giant killer, and he has the perhaps the second most famous downfall or sin in the Bible. The first being the garden, the second being David and Bathsheba. And this morning, as we conclude our series, we want to wrestle with this. What do you do when you blow it big time? What do you do when it looks like your failure, your mistake, your mess up is actually fatal? When you feel like instead of God placing greatness in you, you're simply a great mistake. Been there? Felt that? We started off saying this, and I've said it every single week, God placed greatness in you. Deposited inside of you are extraordinary gifts and talents, creativity, intellect, energy, and dreams, all waiting to be cultivated, all waiting to be developed and unleashed. Your life is precious. Your life matters. And you bring to this planet what no one else brings. And one of the great tragedies is we fail to live into our God-given potential, the greatness God placed inside of us, because of our past failures. Because we do not know what we're to do when we blow it Big time. And one of the things I'm so grateful for the scriptures is that it doesn't simply show someone's highlight reel. It doesn't just declare David this great king and all of his heroics and period in the story. An unattainable mark, an unattainable measure for us to ever meet. But, but it reveals a human being who's struggled and had good moments and bad moments. And in it, we get to learn how God meets us and how we can experience grace and redemption. You know... It's interesting, David, a man after God's own heart. You ever just wonder that? I mean, he heard a little bit of the story in the song, and I had someone ask, well, is the song biblically accurate? It's a song. <laughs> it's not meant to be, but it's, it's close enough. But you ever wonder this? How does a man... After God's own heart, do such a horrible thing. Like, man, how, how does such a good guy do such a bad thing? You know, we, as we were studying the life of David, the life of David has this trajectory and this arc that is really fascinating. He begins as a shepherd boy. In the first years of his life, and it's really the place where God's shaping and making a great warrior, a great king, this the character development phase, and 
He's a nobody as a shepherd boy, and he's a bit of a musician, and gets brought into the king's court as a musician. And then we know his famous moment with David and Goliath, where he moves from being a nobody to a somebody, where he moves from being a shepherd boy to a great warrior and a national hero. And it didn't last long. In fact, last week we talked about the wilderness season, or two weeks ago, about the wilderness season, and literally 10 years goes from nobody to somebody to someone wants to kill you. And for 10 years, he's being hunted by the king of Israel. 10 years, he's wandering in the wilderness. Well, Saul and Jonathan are in a fierce battle, one in which they lose. It actually says, and you can read it, it's interesting, but that David grieves and mourns, not just the death of Jonathan, his good buddy, but of Saul, the man who was hunting him. And he grieves and mourns that, and he moves from the wilderness then to being king. And he has a reign, and in fact, in his kingship, he has a season of success and blessing, Military campaigns that are just uh, going unbelievable. He, he decides to create Jerusalem, and he goes and conquers Jerusalem and makes that his capital city. In that time, he's, he's feeling like, hey, now that I have a capital, God, I want to make you a temple. And he has this great desire to help, you know, give a, he said, a home for God. I, have, I live in this palace, and you live in a tent. Basically, the Ark of the Covenant's in this tent. Can I make you a temple? And God God said, no, not for your time. But it's in the midst of blessing, things go horribly wrong. It's after a season of being king and in power that we see this man after God's own heart do an absolutely horrendous thing. And this morning, I want to talk to you about two different things. One is potential killers. Things that will undermine your God-given potential. Uh, And we actually pick it up in the story of Bathsheba in the account uh, of this moment where where David steps in and literally undermines his kingdom. And and then the second side of that that we want to talk about is then the potential for restoration. The potential for redemption. That God is a God of grace. A God who redeems what we have wrecked. And so if you got your notes, you would open them up. Let's look at potential killers. I, I believe out of this account in the life of David, there's, there's three things that will undermine your God-given potential. Uh, the first is a subtle drift into passivity. A subtle drift into passivity or apathy. Difficult times make us dependent. Difficult times cause you to pray. Difficult times cause you to to strive and to band together, and it's interesting, prosperous times can make us passive, can't they? It says in Samuel 11, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says, In the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war. Now in Israel, their rainy season is winter time, much like our rainy season, and so when spring comes, the sun's up, the... the, um, The roads have dried out. It's when the kings, it's just what a king does. It's one of the expectations of the people that they would go out to war. And it says, in that season, David 
sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Hang on a second. When the time when kings go out to war, David said, I'm going to send you, Joab. And you kind of get it, right? I mean, think about it. Ten years in the wilderness. He's had multiple years, probably about 15 years being king at this point. He's in the grind of life. Isn't he worth this, you know, a spring break? Well, it says of Joab that they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. See, a potential killer is this subtle drift into passivity. This apathy that takes hold of us. This moment, actually, it's when you begin to have some success. And so you subtly walk away from the things that brought you to that point. The habits of the heart that helped you in your life, you begin to drift from. We do this in our relationship with God, don't we? Hard times make us proactive. Good times, we get apathetic. I've heard it said that you cannot feed off, the, off of yesterday's provisions. Isn't it true, though, when you're going through a difficult time with your marriage, when you're going through a difficult time with your kids, when your work world is struggling, when your friendship world is tough, you pray differently, don't you? There's that desperate dependency that you, you don't have to worry about getting up early to meet with God because you're so stressed out, you wake up early and everything's on your mind and all you can do is bring it to God. And then what's fascinating is, what, is when God begins to answer those and we step into a moment, a season of rest. Unfortunately, what we can do is we can become passive and forget the things that brought us there see when you are desperate you prayed earnestly when you're desperate you got wise counsel when you're desperate you worked on your marriage you know I've had a lot of conversations recently with people and their marriages and I'm so grateful for I mean I've probably had seven in the last month of people asking hey do you know a good counselor and I think part of it is I talk about our counselor Sue I mean Sue's Kind of like our best friend that we pay. <laughs> and I love that. I, I, I'm so grateful. And every time I hear someone say that, I just want to say, I thank you for the courage to step out and do that. It's interesting. So uh, our marriage, we launched this church and, man, we, we hit some really rocky times. You know, you hit rocky times, you get really desperate. And as a real prideful guy... It finally took me to the point where I think we need counseling. My wife had been saying it, by the way. She's way more wise than I for years. We go and we get counseling. It was in that season that, um, actually, just so you know, for those who go get counseling and you're in a hard season, the first six months suck. First six months is you're just unraveling a whole bunch of crud in your life. First six months, it feels like you're not even making progress, but you're just slowly trudging through your junk. We get through that season. Man, God restored. and This past fall celebrated, or winter celebrated 15 years of marriage. It's never been more sweet. Thank you. (laughs) 
and awesome. But I tell you what, you know what we do? We still see Sue. Our marriage is great. We still see Sue. In that season, one of the things that we began to put into practice was this weekly date. I happen to have Fridays off. It's my Sabbath. I take Friday completely off. I, I don't, I, I violated this Friday now that I'm saying it. Open confession. There you go. But I almost never do any work on Fridays. My kids have school. Praise the Lord. <laughs> we go on a date during the day. Every single Friday. Why? Because just like my car, I'm going to fill it with gas, and when the light comes on, I'm going to change its oil. I'm not going to wait until it's broken down on the side of the road. I'm going to continue to take care of it. And we drift into passivity. We become apathetic, thinking everything's going to work out, and we take relationships for granted. We take our relationship with Jesus for granted, and we get into automatic. automatic. And it is a potential killer for your life. And David is in this place. It's, it's simple. He's done nothing wrong yet, but he's adrift. And you get nowhere meaningful when you are adrift. The second potential killer is a lowering of your guard. You drift into passivity, and then you begin to lower your guard. David, think about this, is in the safety of his palace. Nothing in his mind could undermine his kingdom there. He's not on the front lines of battle. He's in the safety of his own kingdom. And so, as a result, his guard was down, and it was in that moment that actually undermined his kingdom. One evening... It's always one evening, isn't it? It just seems to be that an evening when we're alone, no matter who you are, whatever your besetting sin is most ferocious. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Seems innocent enough. Except he wasn't supposed to be there to begin with. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. I mean, what this is, essentially, is the the guy on his business trip, and one evening, he just happens to be flipping the channel. You know where that channel is, and you kind of want to flip to it, and you flip to it, and flip back, flip to it, and flip. oh, just a little bit longer. One evening, you know what, it's just an innocent meal, it's just an innocent dinner, it's just an innocent hanging out, it's just one evening, it was just as a little flirt, I know I'm married, but it's just a little flirt, you know what, one evening, the woman was very beautiful, David sent someone to find out about her, now here's something really interesting, and you gotta know this. Because I think some of us believe that there's people in this world who have an S on their chest underneath and they're immune to temptation. And that when you become truly spiritual, you'll never be tempted. That is not. Jesus was tempted in every way. Think about that. And yet was without sin. The enemy for some want you to feel tempted and feel defeated. And so you cave in. Temptation is not a sin. It's acting on the temptation that is a sin. 
No one is immune to temptation. And David, a man after God's own heart, he's adrift into passivity. He's lowered his guard. He sees a beautiful woman. And then he reaches out to one of the assistants in his royal office. The man said, she is Bathsheba. Now, this is fascinating. Look at this. The daughter of Eliam. Now, Eliam's father is one of David's counselors. This is the granddaughter of one of David's counselors. Then he goes on. And the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah the Hittite is one of, and if you go to the end uh, of David's life, you'll notice a listing of his mighty men. These are the core men of valor who have fought, who make up his, like, you know, Navy SEALs. His secret service. Notice what this guy's doing. Dave, that's, that, I, you're the king, so I can't say anything because you're the king. You hold the power in this situation. But let me remind you who that woman is. The granddaughter of your counselor or advisor and the wife of one of your mighty men. Hint, hint. Think about it. And what's fascinating, see, no one's immune to temptation, and God always provides a way out. This is one of those moments where David had the opportunity the, to go realize, to come to his senses, to realize, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. Are you kidding me? One of my mighty men, one of the men that's out at battle right now, one of the guys that's fighting for me where I should be fighting, and that's his wife? Time out. What was I doing? Whoa, this should have been a wake-up call. And yet, when we lower our guard, we, we begin to believe that we're above the consequences. We begin to believe that, you know what, I can get away with it. We begin to believe it won't hurt me. I deserve it. Or I don't even care. Then David sent a message to get her. Literally, that word is to take. And that's how sin works in our life, by the way. We see, and this is the process. Then we desire, and temptation is conceived. And then we take. So what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and they saw the fruit, they desired it, knowing that it was good for knowledge. And then they took. And it's this process. You can say that he collected her. A powerful man violated his position and forced himself onto this woman. This woman didn't have the advantage of living in our world where now we're seeing the Me Too campaign. There's no indication that she had any choice. David violated her. And then it goes on and says that she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. See, the killers in your life that will undermine your God-given potential, it first begins with this drift of passivity. I'm good. 
The things that you used to once do when you're dependent, you now, when life's going easy and good, you stop doing. And then we drift and we move to a lowering of our guard. That we, we for, forget that the battle's real. You, you know, in First uh, Peter 5, he's talking to disciples about this. Followers of Jesus, he says that your, de- that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring, help me out, lion, seeking someone to devour. Now think about this. When do lions attack? When the prey feels most safe. When the prey is content. When the prey has their head down and eating, when they're not noticing, when they're unaware. You know, I was fishing with my brother years ago. We were on a deep sea fishing thing in Florida. With, uh, my dad was there. I hate that kind of stuff. <laughs> you get up at 3 a.m., you, you know, drive, and then you're out a couple miles. And Anyways, my brother was real antsy on, you know, all the safety stuff. And he's, a, he's big into all this kind of stuff. And so I made a joke, and I said, well, hey, Captain Safety, your, uh, your cloak's a little tight. Your cape's a little tight there, bud. And he looks out and he quips back at me and says, well, safety never takes a day off. <laughs> See, there's not a season where you go, I'm good. I'm above it. I'm immune to it. You know, I think about it in my role a lot. My dad growing up would say this because... He was a pastor, still is a pastor, and very successful. And we've watched time and time again men of God, men who've had significant ministry, women who had significant ministry, blow it. And you go, what happened? How could such a good guy do such a horrible thing? Well, as a drift towards passivity, they began to lower their guard, believing that, hey, I'm immune to temptation. I'm beyond that. And so my dad would say this. He would replay the video in his head over and over again of what it meant to have to tell his kids that he blew it. He would lay them out. He would picture us on the couch in his mind and remind himself of those consequences because when we get into that moment, we become irrational, don't we? And we begin to believe, hey, we're above the consequences. And for some, it's because the consequences don't affect us yet. We feel like we got away with it. Well, what do you do when you've blown it big time? Well, David did what we often do when we blow it big time. He forces his way on this woman, sends her back. Hey, it's just a one-night stand. I'm king. I can do whatever I want uses his position and his power, and then, uh-oh, hey, Dave, remember that night? Yeah. Um, I'm pregnant. You can't hide it now. So what he does, he calls Uriah back from the front lines, saying, hey, you know what? If I can get Uriah back to sleep with his wife, then we'll cover it up. See, when we mess up, our natural tendency, our natural inclination, when we blow it big time, is to cover it up, isn't it? To go into hiding, to keep it a secret. Hmm. 
He brings Uriah back under false pretense, and he, he literally says this, and I, I'm going to say this just because it's so funny, and there's so many funny things in the Bible, and, um, and you need to know this, and you wouldn't get this. He says, wash your feet. It's a euphemism for his manly parts to go be with his wife. He brings him home, and he says, Uriah, hey, go sleep with your wife. And he goes, instead of home, he goes to the palace guard. Why? Because he's a good soldier. He realizes his men are on the front lines. And Dave realize, finds out that he doesn't go to his wife. He says, hey, what's happening? He says, how can I go sleep with my wife when my men are out there fighting? How could I do that? And Dave's going like, yeah, how could you do that? I get that. Mm. Phase two, since that didn't work, let me get Uriah drunk. And then hopefully when he's drunk... He'll go sleep with his wife. Even after being drunk, he went and slept outside. Phase three. He says, okay, man. He writes a letter telling his commander, Joab, put Uriah in the front lines. And when the battle gets fiercest, call back the men around him so that he'll be left unprotected and he'll die. And he hands it in a sealed note to Uriah. And Uriah goes to Joab, unbeknownst to him, has done everything right, and hands him his own death sentence. Think about this. This is how far we can go down. Well, you just think about the big ten in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Check. You shall not commit adultery. Check. You shall not commit murder. Three out of ten. All to cover up. Bathsheba then goes into the appointed season of mourning for her husband's death. When that time's over, David takes her as his wife. It's apparent to everyone what's going on. He just happens to be the man in power, so no one's saying anything. About a year goes by, and that happens to us. That happens to us, isn't it? That... that a season goes by and we think we've gotten away with it. We think it's past. We think we're good. Bathsheba has the baby. And then the prophet Nathan comes. And if you ever want to study how to lovingly confront someone in their sin, study Nathan. I mean, he's brilliant. He, he knows if he says, Dave, what you did is wrong, David might just go, I'm going to kill you. He's king. He can Instead, of, instead, Nathan tells him a story. He says, David, and he, and he, and he plays on David's, David's background as a shepherd. He says, now a rich man had a guest come into town. Now, this rich man had hundreds of sheep, and there was a poor man that lived next to him who only had one sheep. In fact, that one sheep was like his only daughter. It was just the pride of his life. He even slept with it, cuddled with it. It's like a family pet. The rich man came and had the guest, and he was unwilling to 
kill any of his own sheep for the feast, he goes and takes that one little sheep from that poor man and kills it for his own gain. And David reacts in anger. says, that man must die. Because we're often the harshest critics of our own downfall, aren't we? And then Nathan says, you are that man. And then David does what kings don't do. David does something that no king in that region would have done. You don't confront kings and live. And David does something, and we pick it up in Psalm 51. That's completely unexpected, but reminds us. Okay, sin had hardened your heart, and you did something that's evil. Let's just call it evil. But he responds by repenting. Instead of killing Nathan, he owns his junk. And so, what do you do when you blow it big time? When your best days feel like they're behind you? When your failures appear to be fatal? You can dismiss it and go, no, 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 it's just a mistake. And this wasn't a mistake, by the way. That's what we do with our stuff. We call it a mistake. No, 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 it's sin. A mistake is like, oh, man, I, I accidentally gave you three quarters instead of two quarters. A sin is I gave you a raw deal, and I knew about it. David knew what was going on. But his response reminds us that even when we've blown it big time, we serve a God of restoration. So let me give you just from Psalm 51, if you're in the place where you're going like, hey, I'm there. My potential, it's gone. I'm done. Four things that bring about our restoration with God. First, Run to God, not from God. Run to God, not from God. When you've blown it big time, when I've blown it big time, our natural is to run from God, to hide, to to go, you know what? God could never want me. After being confronted by the prophet Nathan, David says this, have mercy on me, O God. Now notice this, according to your unfailing love, his hesed, covenant love, See, no matter what you've done, where you've been, what's gone on in your life, God's love has never varied and changed towards you. He will never love you any more, and he'll never love you any less. His love is constant source. He says, I love you right where you're at. 
And what we tend to believe and the lie we tend to believe is that when we are good boys and good girls, God loves us more. And when we're bad boys and bad girls, God loves us less. And he says, no, no, no. My love has never varied since the day you were born and never will vary. I love you. I love you. I love you. And so don't run from me when life's hard. Don't run from me when you've won a big time. Run to me because I love you according to your unfailing love, and according to your great compassion. So you can run to God because he's merciful. You can run to God because he's compassionate. You can run to God because he has unfailing love for you. It is the prodigal son who basically said to his dad, screw you, I don't want anything to do with you. I want my inheritance and do it my own way. And he goes and lives like hell And then he comes to his senses and realizes even servants live better than the way he's living as he's cleaning out a pigsty. His hope to go back to his dad is just to be one of his dad's servants. But his dad, every day, had been looking out, watching, hoping, waiting, wondering if his son would ever return. And when he saw his son on the horizon, he picks up his, his robe, which is a, such a sign of disrespect. No man in the ancient day would ever do this, especially a man of prominence like this one. And he runs to his son, and he wraps his arms around him, and he kisses him, and he says, welcome home. And his son begins to go through his speech of, Dad, you know, if only I could do this and he doesn't even let him finish it and he says put the sign of sonship back on his finger of ring and that's your God run back to your God when you've blown it big time stop running from him stop hiding stop trying to cover up your mess up run to God and then come clean run to God and then come clean God cannot heal what you keep concealing What we keep in hiding. Your secret and your secrets are the very things that are keeping you stuck. Notice David says, Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions. Like I'm aware. I can count them out. And my sin is always before me. This is my confession to you. Confession, by the way, just simply means to agree with God about how life is meant to be. To agree with God that that was wrong. See, instead of confessing, what we often do is we compare to other people. Well, I'm not really that bad. Look at them. Well, it's not really that big of a deal. We, we maybe complain. Say, no, no, I'm, I'm going to come clean. I'm going to say, this is what I did. And for some, this is such a moment of healing for you. Because you've been covering up, you've been covering up, and you've been praying. And you're wondering why that thing, that issue, that thing that has kept you stuck, and why you're not experiencing freedom. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, would say this, confess your sins one to another that you might be, anyone? Healed. There's power, power, power in coming clean owning your junk, run to God, come clean, and then ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness. Notice what he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. 
The bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Like, God, I want you to, to just hide your face from what I've done. Later, another psalm would say, as far as the east is from the west, so you have separated my sin from me and blot out all my iniquity. Let me tell you, maybe give you a practical way how to ask for forgiveness. We've, we've lost this in our society. Because owning our junk is uncomfortable. Saying, you know what? I, I did this wrong. Will you please forgive me? In fact, we say it this way. In fact, I had this. Uh, I should have asked my wife first. My wife and I got into a little bit of an argument this morning. It was when Finley, my dog, ran in, and I'd gotten Finley out, and then I was trying to get breakfast cooked, and Finley runs in, and then again, and it's like the third time I've put Finley out, and I say it this way, who let Finley in? You know, I'm just angrily making eggs. (laughs) Well, Jenny wasn't there when I'd gone through that. And she responds, like, like, stop yelling. I'm not yelling. <laughs> Anyways, we have a conversation after that. And she says, um, so when you make these statements like, who did this? It just like adds blame. And here's how I said what I said next, ironically to what we're preaching in this moment, and then had to go back. I said this, I'm sorry that you feel that way. (laughs) By the way, men, Valentine's Day is coming up. Don't lead with that. See, a lot of times when we say I'm sorry, we say I'm sorry that I got caught. Or I'm sorry that you feel that way. Instead of, I'm sorry. And this is what we try to teach our kids. I'm sorry means I'm broken over what I've done. I'm I'm sad that I hurt you. And I'm making a commitment to change the way I'm behaving. That's what I'm sorry means. So when you ask for forgiveness. In fact, let me just give you a little phrase that you can begin to develop in your own prayer life, like this morning, I wrote down in my journal, search me, O God. See if there's any evil way in me. See if there's anything in me that's not of you. When have you asked that of God? And then just were silent. And let him speak. And let him show you maybe an attitude, a response, a thought, an issue in your life. A sentence, Father, I am sorry for... And then fill in the blank. Father, heavenly father, perfect heavenly father, the prodigal father, father. I am sorry for, I'm taking ownership for, and then you fill in the blank. Will you please forgive me and wash me clean? And then you always end this way because you have to remind yourself because even though it's true, you forget it. Thank you for forgiving me. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. It's on his faithfulness and his justice, not yours. And he will purify us and cleanse us and forgive us from all unrighteousness. Run to God, come clean, ask for forgiveness when you've blown it big time. 
and then do an about turn. Do an about turn. Change directions. Repentance means to realize you've headed in the wrong direction and you turn around. Create in me a pure heart, oh God. Like, here's what I realized. My about turn is it was an issue of the heart. I had a hard heart, and I ran past all the warning signs. Create in me a pure heart, oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I don't want to lose my relationship with you. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I'm running towards your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit. I remember as a college student, Tony Evans speaking and speaking about repentance. And he he said it this way, and I'll never be able to say it the way he says it. He's so good. He says, imagine you're driving south on a road, and you come to the realization you should be heading north. So what do you do? You, good part, you recognize you're going in the wrong direction. And for some, this morning is a recognition. This is a realization. You've been heading in the wrong direction. And then it goes like this. And so what you do is you see a half a mile up that you're going to get on the off-ramp of confession. Then you're going to have to get back on the other road. There's this overpass, and it's the overpass of grace. And that's where God meets you. And you get back onto the on-ramp of restoration. See, God can redeem what we have wrecked when we come and we stop concealing and we bring it to him and repent. C.S. Lewis said it this way, we all want progress. But if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the person or the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. This morning going to give you a moment to respond. In fact, the song that the band's going to sing is called Come to the Altar. For some, you've been drifting. Let's just call it what it is. There's nothing significant or bad happening in your life, but you've just been drifting. And if you continue to live adrift, you will undermine your God-given potential. I'm going to invite you, if you've been drifting, to come to the altar, like to physically get up out of your chairs, and then to come and just get on your knees during this song and just pray. And just go, okay, today, God, I'm moving towards you. I'm returning to the things that I did when I was desperate. For others, man, you're in the place where you've blown it big time, and you need to repent. And I'm going to invite you to come to the front and just go, God, here I am. Like, a, like putting a stake in the ground, confessing, coming clean. It might be sharing it with a close friend. It might be sharing it with one of our prayer team leaders. But where you come and you just go, okay, God, here I am. I'm tired of faking it to make it. It's not working and for others, you had no idea that you had a God who loved you. You've been running from God, but you've never had a relationship with God. And here's the amazing thing, this story of Bathsheba, like God redeeming. Bathsheba had a son named Solomon, who eventually became the next king of Israel. And from Solomon, we find in the line of uh, David, the genealogy in 
Matthew. That is from this really painful event. That the future Messiah who would wash away the sins of the world, who would create a way for you to have a relationship with God, would come. And for some, this is a morning where you say, I want a relationship with God. Would you come into my life and make me new? And I invite you to come forward, not even that you have it all figured out, but you just go, hey, I'm going to come forward because I want to experience grace. I want to go over the overpass of grace. I want a relationship with Jesus. And so would you stand and will you sing with us?